So, so if uh, I don't get to finish uh, what I had covered, uh, then feel free to talk to me afterwards, and I will be more than happy to point you to the same resource that I that I found uh, all this information in. Ultimately, it points back to the Bible, doesn't it? I think I could just end right there. Um, well, let's begin once again with a word of prayer as we look into the second offering known as the meat offering, the meat offering. Father in heaven, once again, we evoke your Holy Spirit to guide us and to teach us. Through these offerings, give us a glimpse into your mind. Give us a glimpse to who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1 to 16. I think that it's very beneficial that we read the entirety of the scripture so that if the least benefit we could get is at least a big picture into what's going on. I could kind of glean and just show you the verses here and there, but there's a purpose why I want us to read the whole chapter uh, so that we could get a, a big picture of what's really going on here. Verse 1 of Leviticus chapter 2. The Bible reads, And when any will offer a meat offering. And by the way, my Bible says, and I'm reading from the King James Version, it says a meat offering. And I think that's what I've got here on my PowerPoint presentation. Now that's not referring to meat as in flesh meat. Uh, in the original, and some other versions may render grain offering. How many of you see that on your version? Grain offering. Now, the reason why I, I'm bringing this out, because this is the only offering out of the five offerings that there's no bloodshed. Amen? Amen? All the other offerings, blood was needed. Bloodshed. But this offering was bloodless. And so one, one must ask, how can this offering point to Jesus? Though there was no blood in this offering, hopefully... I will show to you from the word of God, there is an element of death in this offering. For the Bible teaches us that this grain had to go through the process from being a grain to flour. And then the Bible says the offerer will take the flour and then he will knead it and, and make it into cakes. And then it will become a grain offering unto God. How does grain go from being a grain to a flower. First of all, you had to beat that grain until it dies. Thus, we see the element of death in that grain. Amen? And so though we may not see blood in the offering, we do see the element of death right there in the grain offering. But this offering is very unique in a sense that there is no blood in this offering. However, just because there's no blood doesn't mean that there's no messianic meaning in there. There is, if we study very carefully. Leviticus chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. The Bible reads, And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be of what? Fine 
flour. And he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and he shall take thereout his handful of the flour thereof and of the oil thereof with all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn the memorial upon it, upon the altar, to be an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And the remnant of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. And if you bring an oblation of a meat offering bacon in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. And if your oblation be a meat offering, bacon in a pan, it shall be of fine flour, unleavened, mingled with oil. You will bring it in pieces and pour oil thereon. It is a meat offering. And if thy oblation be a meat offering, bacon in the frying pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you will bring the meat offering that is made of these things unto the Lord. And when it is presented unto the priest, he shall bring it unto the altar. And the priest shall take from the meat offering a memorial thereof, and shall burn it upon the altar. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And that which is left of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. No meat offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven. For what does leaven represent, by the way? Then the Bible says, sin. For ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. Verse 12. As for the oblation of the firstfruits, ye shall offer them unto the Lord, but they shall not be burnt on the altar for a sweet savor. And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. And if you offer a meat offering of your first fruits unto the Lord, you shall offer for the meat offering of your first fruits green ears of corn dried by the fire, even corn beaten out of full ears. And thou shalt put oil upon it and lay frankincense thereon. It is a meat offering. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it, part of the beaten corn thereof, and the part of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof, it is an offering made by what, friends? Made by fire unto the Lord. Now, the Bible tells us here that this offering is considered a meat offering. What offering did I say? A meat offering. When you look at the original Hebrew for this word meat offering, it comes from the word Minka. The word minka simply means a gift made to a superior. 
The Bible tells us that this wasn't just any ordinary gift, but this was a gift that one would make in submission and on independence to someone who is their superior, Minka. Now come with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 32 and verse 13. Genesis, what chapter are we on? Chapter 32 and verse 13. The Bible reads, And he lodged there that same night. This is talking about uh, Jacob and Esau. When Jacob and Esau had their, their differences, now the Bible teaches us that Jacob and Esau were now coming to make peace. Remember that story? That's the context. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 32 verse 13. And he lodged there that same night and took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau his brother. The Bible says here that Jacob gave Esau his brother a present. He gave him a what? He gave him a present. That word present there in the Hebrew is the word minka. A gift made to a superior. Thus, Jacob, by rendering to Esau this grain offering, he was basically telling Esau, you are my superior and I am your inferior. I submit to you. I humble myself to you, for you are greater than I am. Minka, a gift made to a superior. Come with me to the book, I think it's Samuel. Second Samuel, as a matter of fact, keep your finger there, Genesis chapter 43. Genesis chapter 43. And verse 11, do you remember the man Joseph in Egypt? How many brothers did Joseph have? Eleven. Was it? And do you remember the brothers coming and bringing a gift to Joseph? Genesis chapter 43 and verse 11. The Bible says, And their father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land, in your vessels, and carry down the man, that's referring to Joseph, a present, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds. The Bible tells us here, that the brothers of Joseph brought him a present. Guess what that word present is in the Hebrew word? Minka, a gift made to a superior. They were acknowledging to Joseph that he was their superior and they were his inferior. Second Samuel. Second Samuel. We are going line upon line. Is that okay? Second Samuel chapter 8. Beginning with verse 1. 
Second Samuel. What chapter are we on? Chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, David and his conquests. And after this it came to pass that David smote the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Megathama out of the hand of the Philistines. And he smote Moab and measured them with a line, casting them down to the ground. Even with two lines measured he to put to death, and with one full line to keep alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants and brought gifts. Minka. The Moabites, after they were conquered and subdued by David, recognized that there was a superior power above them. Thus, they brought to King David a grain offering. That's found in the sanctuary. Minka, a gift made to a superior. Jump down to verse 6. The Bible says, Then David put garrisons in Syria. What did he do? Garrisons in Syria of Damascus. And the Syrians became servants to David and brought gifts. Guess what that word gift is in Hebrew? Minka. It was a tribute paid by someone who was subdued and conquered. A gift made to a superior. These gifts, listen to me, these gifts, a gift made to superior, was to bring out in the life of the offerer complete submission and dependence. Complete submission and dependence. Thus, the, the grain offering simply teaches us that we must recognize in our mind that God is our superior and we are his inferior. And we must be totally dependent on him for every good blessing comes from God. In a sense, our returning of our tithe is a sense of minka. For we are acknowledging that God is the giver of all. Isn't that true? We are returning to God and acknowledging to God that He is our superior and we are His inferior. And everything belongs to Him. Thus, we submit ourselves and we are totally dependent on our Master. Now, I'm just showing to you from the Word of God what the Hebrew says. But there's actually a shortcut that you can come to the same conclusion without going to the Hebrew. That's the spirit of prophecy. Amen? Notice what the pen of inspiration says. Bible commentary, page 719. The servant of the Lord says, The meat offering in the sanctuary signified man's what? Dependence upon God for how much of all good things? All good things of life. In recognition of him as owner and provider. 
That's what the grain offering symbolizes. In presenting such an offering, a man or a woman acknowledged himself as but a steward of the things entrusted to him. Now that's clear. Can you say amen? amen. That language right there sounds like a gift made to a superior. I tell you, this little old woman had insight. More than just insight. She was inspired. What do you say? Amen. Dependence for all the good things of life in recognition of him as owner and, prover and provider. In presenting such an offering, a man acknowledged himself as but a steward of the things entrusted to him. Come back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1. Sorry, Leviticus chapter 2. We are on the meat offering. Now, while you're turning there, the meat offering is separate from the burnt offering. Let me explain to you what I mean. The meat offering, or sorry, the burnt offering, as we just talked about a few minutes ago, symbolizes a consecration of life. A consecration of what? A consecration of life. Now we talked about that. The life of the offer was to be given all upon the altar of sacrifice. Remember that? Mm -hmm. Thus symbolizing that our life, mind, body, and soul belongs to God. That's what the burnt offering simply teaches us. That all of me, mind, body, and soul belongs to God. A consecration of life. Now the meat offering, however, is different. The meat offering simply teaches us that the meat offering symbolizes a consecration of means. A consecration of what? A consecration of means. Now this is what I love about the systematic theology of the Bible. The burnt offering must precede the meat offering. You didn't catch that, did you? <laughs> a consecration of life precedes a consecration of means. It doesn't happen the other way around. When God has full ownership of you, He has full ownership of everything that you own. That's the reason why the meat offering occurs after the burnt offering. Once God has gripped you with his grace, then he owns everything that you own. We are mere stewards of God. One must precede the other. They go hand in hand. If we serve God, we must serve God with all that we are and with all that we have. Amen? Once God has you, He has your means. God is not concerned about your means. God wants your life first. Because once He has your life, He has your means. The burnt offering and the meat offering go hand in hand. 
One must precede the other. It doesn't happen the other way around. If that's clear, can you say amen? Both of these combined makes a sweet savor unto God. In my visitations at church, I have, how should I put this? People with means, if you know what I mean. But who are still in the valley of decision. And so in my visitations, when I go and I sit down with them, and I could see that they're kind of backsliding uh, from God and in their church attendance. And based on the Holy Spirit, sometimes he impresses me just to come out and say, well, Brother John, what's holding you back from coming back to church? Why are you unfaithful in keeping the Sabbath? What's holding you back from giving your whole life to God and his church? And sometimes people with means will cover their unconversion by being kind and sympathetic to you by offering the church much means. You know what I mean? And says, what's the latest? And they'll say, Pastor, what's the latest project in your church? Here's a check right here. And sometimes blatantly I've had to say to them, I didn't come here for your check. I came here for your soul. As hefty as that check may be. Because once God has your life, he has your means. Amen? What God wants ultimately is your heart. Once God has your heart, he has everything that you own. If that's clear, can you say amen? amen? There's a reason why the meat offering comes after the burnt offering. Both of these offerings go hand in hand to make a sweet savor unto God. I want to give my heart to God. How about you? Amen. Means are good, but means are abominable if we don't give God our hearts. Right. Let's go back to the book of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 2. Leviticus chapter 2. Notice what the Bible says in verses 1, 4, 5, and 7. Leviticus chapter 2, verses 1, 4, 5, and 7. And I preluded this a few minutes ago. We're talking about the fine flour. The Bible says, Leviticus 2, 1. And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. Of what? Fine flour. And he shall pour oil upon it and put frankincense thereon. Then the Bible says in verse 4. And if you bring an oblation of a meat offering, bacon, in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil. Now the Bible makes it very clear here that the flour that was used to make the cakes or to bring as a grain offering unto God was fine flour. What kind of a flour? It was fine flour. It could have just said flour, but it had to be extremely refined. Then the Bible continues to say in verse 7, And if thy oblation be a meat offering, bacon in the frying pan, it shall be made of what? Fine flour with oil. Now this fine flour is symbolic of the product of a cooperation between God and man. Between who? 
between God and man. For the Bible tells us that it is God who gives the grain to make the flower. That's clear. Can you say amen? amen. He gives the grain. He implants life principles into that grain. Then the Bible says that once it's ready for harvest, after God has watered it, after God has given it light, after God has done His part, in order for grain to transition into fine flour, there is a cooperation between what God does and what man does. Once God has watered it, once God has given it a sunshine and given it life, then man must do his part by harvesting the grain, by beating the grain over and over again. And this process is what makes fine flour. Thus the fine flour is symbolic of the cooperation between God and man. Fine flour just doesn't come by a magic wand, y'all. Amen? There is a part that God must play and there is a part that we must play in order for the fine flower to be acceptable in the sight of God. And we see this theology in Scripture over and over again. A classic, a classic verse that brings out the cooperation between God and man in order to have salvation is 1 John 1.9. The Bible says, if Who does the confessing? We do the confessing, amen? That's the part that we must play, just like how the offerer does his part by harvesting and by beating the grain in order for it to be fine flour. If we confess our sins, then who does his part? He is faithful and just, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That sounds like fine flower language to me. Amen. Amen? There is a cooperation that must exist between the two parties in order for there to be fine flower. There is a cooperation between God and man if there must be salvation. John 3.16, folks. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever what? Believes in Him. Now God made the provision for salvation, but it's not until someone individually believes that they become saved. That sounds like fine flour to me. What do you say? Thus, the fine flower symbolizes the cooperation between God and man. God waters it. God gives it sunshine. God gives it life principles. But the process in order to become fine flower just doesn't end there. Then man must come, harvest the flower, harvest the grain, beat the grain, and then it produces fine flower. Thus, there is a cooperation between humanity and divinity. Even Ellen White says, as I mentioned last night, human effort plus divine power equals success. Not human effort alone, nor divine power alone, but human effort plus divine power equals what, friends? Equals success. 
The grain must be crushed. The grain must get to a point where it's lifeless and it's dead in order to produce fine flour. Thus, as I said earlier on, this is where we see the messianic meaning of the grain offering. Jesus had to die in order for you and I to be saved. He had to be crushed. He had to be bruised. He had to be whipped for our iniquities. Isn't that what the Bible says? Amen. The grain had to be crushed in order to bring life. Through death, through the death of the grain, by the crushing of the grain, it produced essence for the soul. This crushing experience, and I'm going to digress here, this crushing experience of the grain reminds me of the book of Revelation, a church in the book of Revelation known as the Smyrna Church. Smyrna Church has elements of fine flower language. Remember the Smyrna Church? Smyrna Church simply means sweet smelling. It comes from an Arabian herb that when it is crushed, just like the grain, it produces a sweet smelling aroma in the sight of God. I tell you, the Bible is rich, isn't it? An offering made to a superior. Minka. Amen? I want you guys walking out there. Minka, minka, minka. <laughs> An offering made to a superior. There, the, 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 the offering teaches us that this offering must come after the burnt offering. A consecration of life will automatically result in a consecration of means. Furthermore, in order for there to be salvation, there must be a part that God plays and there must be a part that we play. This crushing experience that produces death points none other to the death of Jesus Christ. What do you say? Let's go back to the book of Leviticus. Chapter 3, let's go on to our next offering, the peace offering. Leviticus chapter 3, again, I want us to read the whole chapter. Leviticus, so that we could get a complete picture of what's going on here. Leviticus chapter 3. Beginning with verses 1, right down to the end. And if his oblation be a sacrifice of offering, if, the, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it at the door of the tabernacle, tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall sprinkle the blood upon the altar round about. And he 
shall offer the sacrifice of the peace offering, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards. And the two kidneys, and the fat that is on them, which is by the flanks, and the coal above the liver, with the kidneys, it shall he take away. And Aaron's sons shall burn it on the altar upon the burnt sacrifice, which is upon the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offering unto the Lord be of the flock, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish. If he offer a lamb for his offering, then shall he offer it before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of his offering and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron's sons shall sprinkle the blood thereof round about upon the altar. And he shall offer the sacrifice of the what offering? The peace offering, an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The fat thereof and the whole rump. It shall he take off hard by the backbone, and the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks, and the coal above the liver, with the kidneys, it shall he take away. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar. It is the food, the what? The food of the offering made by fire unto the Lord. And if his offering be a goat, then he shall offer it before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of it and kill it before the tabernacle of the congregation. And the sons of Aaron shall sprinkle the blood thereof upon the altar round about. And he shall offer thereof his offering, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. The fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards. And the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the flanks. And the coal above the liver, with the kidneys, it shall he take away. And the priest shall burn them upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet savor. All the fat is the Lord's. It shall be a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings that ye eat neither what? Neither fat nor blood. Now this offering is amplified more in the book of Leviticus chapter 7. Thus we see right there in the Old Testament the principle of repetition and enlargement. Amen? It is amplified even more in the book of Leviticus chapter 7. But I want to review to you the different offerings real quick before we go to the peace offering. There are many things we can draw up, but there is one thing in particular that I would like to submit to your attention about the importance of the peace offering. First of all, the burnt offering sacrifice was consumed, remember that, holy, not partially, but holy. We dwell upon that. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was a complete 
and total sacrifice. That's what the burnt offering meant. Christ held nothing back. Secondly, there was the meat or the grain sacrifice were the sacrifices of the basic food, the flour, the oil, and the water, thus teaching us that Jesus' sacrifice meets the basic needs of people. Jesus is the bread of life. Furthermore, we have the peace offering that is expressed, which means uh, or is expressed, which expresses the benefits of taking the sacrifice into one's life. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross only benefits those who what? Believe. Remember, we already established there is a part that God must play, but there is a part that humans must play. Only benefits those who believe and accept Him into their lives. John 3, 16. Then there's a sin offering that simply expresses that life is where? In the blood. Jesus' sacrifice points out that eternal life can only be found where? Through the blood of Jesus. We talked about this afternoon, this washing of regeneration. And it's only the blood of Jesus that can cleanse us from all sin. What do you say? What can wash my sins away? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, how I long to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. How about you? And to be sustained by His Holy Spirit. Sin offering. Then there's the trespass offering. The what offering? The trespass offering. The trespass offering expresses that sin creates a barrier or a debt that must be paid. And it is only by a sacrifice that that debt can be compensated. That's what the trespass, ring, trespass offering simply teaches. Jesus' sacrifice paid for our sin. Now some of you may wonder, why are there five offerings? Why, why didn't God just use one offering to explain the ministry of Christ? One offering wasn't enough. There had to be five offerings that explains the complete ministry of Jesus. And once we understand the ministry of Jesus through these offerings, the sacrifice of Jesus becomes more minute and more meaningful. What do you say? And we miss out on the meaning of the ministry of Jesus when we skip over the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus gives more meaning and minute detailness to the life and the death of Jesus. And when we skip over it, we, we, we omit and we miss out on the great blessings that's right there in a book that's perceived as boring. I want to show you some comparisons and you can read this in the book of Leviticus uh, for yourself. But there's a point I'm trying to glean from the peace offering. Now, we have the reference, Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1 talks about what offering? The burnt offering. Now, when you read Leviticus chapter 1, you will notice there in the details that the priest would apply the blood on the sides of the altar. The flesh went to God. 
Notice the details. The flesh went to who? The flesh was wholly consumed by God. Then the Bible refers in Leviticus chapter 2 to the meat offering, the grain offering. Was there blood on the altar? No, as I mentioned earlier on, this was a bloodless offering. But just because it was a bloodless offering, there's still some messianic meaning. Because in order for there to be fine flour, there must be a crushing, there must be lifelessness, there must be a death. Amen? So we see no blood. We see no blood on the altar. Where did the flesh go? Well, there was no flesh. It was a grain offering. And this is what makes this offering so unique from all the other offerings. Then we go back to Revelation chapter 3 and chapter 7. We just read Revelation chapter 3, but Revelation chapter 7 simply amplifies Revelation chapter 3. This offering is referred to as the peace offering. What offering? The peace offering. And the blood in Revelation, Leviticus chapter 3 and chapter 7 was applied on the sides of the altar, just like the burn offering. And you read it right there. Now notice very carefully where the flesh went to. In Leviticus chapter 7, when you read that chapter, the Bible says that the flesh was divided between three groups of people. It went to God, some went to the priest, and the remainder stayed with the offer. And the book of Leviticus chapter 7 teaches that all three of these components had to sit there and eat that flesh right there and then. I want to come back to that because there's meaning in that. What do you say? Then we come to the sin offering in Leviticus chapter 4 and it's amplified in Leviticus chapter 6. What's known as the sin offering. The Bible says that the sin offering, the blood, was applied to the horns. Not on the side, not on the altar, but it was applied to the horns. The flesh didn't go to the offerer. It didn't even go to God. It went to the priest. Do you see the difference? There's a meaning for that. But I'm going to dwell on the peace offering for tonight. Then the fifth and the final offering talks about the trespass offering. In Leviticus chapter 5 and in the second part of Leviticus chapter 7. The Bible says here that the blood was applied to the side of the altar. Just like the peace offering and just like the burnt offering. But the flesh was given to the priest only. Not to the offerer and none of it went to a divine being. It went completely to the priest. But it is here the peace offering that would like to submit to your attention. The Bible says that the flesh went to three entities. How many entities? Three entities. It went to the Lord. Part of it went to the Lord. Part of it went to Aaron and his priests. And part of it went to the offerer. And the Bible says in the book of Leviticus chapter 7 that all three of these entities had to sit there, right there in the sanctuary, right there in the book of Leviticus, and they would commune and dine with each other as they participated in the peace offering. The peace offering, 
and the flesh divided between three entities basically taught the children of Israel the importance of communal fellowship. You didn't catch that, did you? The peace offering teaches us that there is a role and a place when God's people come together in communal fellowship. There is a part of our character building as we await the second coming of Jesus that's hinged upon the brethren coming together. Doesn't the Bible say, forsake not the assembly of the brethren? There is a false theology that seems to be permeating out there today that teaches that I can become a Christian and there's no need for religion. There's no need for communal fellowship. I love your Christ, but I don't love your Christians. Amen? But the peace offering teaches us that communal fellowship is imperative to the growth of the believer. For in communal fellowship, there is fellowship and accountability. Amen? And both of these factors are imperative to our Christian growth. Peace offering teaches us the importance of coming together as a group of people and worshiping God in one particular location. Church attendance is necessary, y'all. What do you say? Forsake not the assembly of the brethren. Come together as God's people and commune with each other. For there is an element of our makeup that God has created as social beings. Don't be a hermit or a monk. When you detach yourself from the brethren, you're in danger of the same sin that plagued David. David committed adultery because he stayed back at home when he should have been out on the front lines battling with his men. The importance of communal fellowship. Community, what do you say? I'd like to read to you a book called Emerging Trends, Volume 19, a man by the name of George Gallup Jr. And he makes the very interesting observation. He says, we, and he's talking about North America, he's talking about the Western world. And he says, we are physically detached from each other. We change places of residence frequently. One survey revealed that seven in ten do not know their neighbors. As many as one-third of Americans admit to frequent periods of what? Of loneliness. This is the challenge that we are bombarded by in the, in the postmodern society that we live in. Individualism 
being detached and a sense of loneliness. And the peace offering could be the solution to this. That there is power and growth when God's people come together as a community of believers. What do you say? Forsake not the assembly of the brethren. For there is accountability and there is fellowship when God's people come together. That's why the flesh was given to all three of these parties, thus teaching the children of Israel the importance of communal fellowship. Bible in the community. We all know this verse. The Bible says in the book of Acts, they devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. That sounds like communion to me. What are you saying? Teaching of bread and to prayer. This is community. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and good, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together, where? In the temple and in the courts. That's communion fellowship. Somehow the apostolic church knew the importance of coming together. They could have just stayed home. But I tell you what, Pentecost would not have fell if the disciples had not come together. That sounds like a peace offering to me. What do you say? There is a blessing that awaits those if they were to receive the latter rain, if they come together as a people. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. Let's go on a few verses about community. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, 25. This is what the Bible speaks on community. Let us consider how to stimulate one another and to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own what? Assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 10 says the importance of communal fellowship as the day draws near. What day is that? The second coming of Jesus. So Hebrews chapter 10 says that the closer we get to the second coming of Jesus, the more vital and imperative it is for God's people to commune with one another and with God. Peace offering. Then the Bible says, Romans chapter 12, live in harmony with one another. Communal fellowship. I appeal to you, my brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united, how friends? In mind and thought. Now I can go verse after verse showing you the importance of communal fellowship. Now, I want to end off with this. The peace offering, what offering did I say? When you look at its definition, the peace offering simply means to make up to supply what is wanting, to pay a recompense. The peace offering, friends, is simply an expression on the part of the offer of his peace with God and of his thankfulness to him for his what? For his many blessings. The peace offering teaches us 
that once we know that we are at peace with God, we should be the happiest people on earth. That's what the peace offering teaches us. We may not have much money. We may not have letters behind our names. But as long as my soul is at peace with God, I'm happy. Amen. Amen? Amen. I may not have all the materialistic things in this world. But as long as my soul is in harmony with God, that's the only thing that should matter. That's what the peace offering teaches us. That our happiness is not hinging upon some materialistic thing, but our happiness is hinging upon our relationship with God. When we are at peace, we should be the most happiest people on earth. Notice what Ellen White says as I come to a close. She says, Christians should be the most cheerful and happy people that live. Wouldn't you agree? Seventh-day Adventists should be the most happiest and courteous people that live. Then she goes on to say, They may have the consciousness that God is their father and their everlasting friend, but many professed Christians do not correctly represent the Christian religion. They appear gloomy as if under a cloud. Lord have mercy. <coughs> they often speak of the great sacrifices that they have made to become Christians. You met people like that? Oh, I had to give up on that cheese. Today is a sad day. For today, my wife and I has decided that we become vegan. The most gloomiest Christians that live on the planet Earth. They boast of the sacrifices that they had to go through in order to become Christians. They often speak of the great sacrifices that they have made to become Christians. They appeal to those who have not accepted Christ, representing by their own example and conversation that they must give up everything which would make life pleasant and joyful. They throw a pall of darkness over the blessed Christian hope. The impression is given that God's requirements are a burden, even to the willing soul. And that everything that would give pleasure or that would delight the taste must be sacrificed. The peace offering teaches us the joy of communal fellowship. And the peace offering teaches us the importance of being happy Christians. Not sad Venice, but Adventist. What do you say? <laughs> Paul says, I delight to do thy law, O God. He doesn't say, I do thy law, O God. But he says, I delight to do thy law, O God. Keeping the law of God for David was a delight. And if David was here, eating the way he ate was a joy. 
dressing the way he dressed brought happiness. What do you say? Holding himself the way he held himself wasn't a burden, but a joy. That's what it means when the Bible teaches us about the peace offering. May we be at peace with our Father. What do you say? May we be at peace with our God. May we be the happiest Christians that live on this earth. That when people see us, despite the economic turndown, despite what's happening at Washington, D.C., Despite the outcome of the elections, may we be the happiest Christians. No matter what's going on in the Vatican, may we be the happiest Christians. What do you say? God wants us to be happy. Jesus is coming soon. And Jesus is coming for people who delight to do thy law of God. Is that your desire today, to delight to do the law of God? Let us all stand for our final benediction. Great and eternal Father in heaven, we thank you for the Sabbath. It has now passed, and now we have entered into another week. And as we enter into another week, we give you our all. We realize that you are our superior, and we are your inferior. Make us happy Christians that people can see that we have been with you, Lord Jesus. As the day draws nigh of your soon return, keep us true and faithful. Cleanse us and keep us. In Jesus' name we pray. Let everybody say amen Amen. and amen. God bless you. You may be seated.